you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. It's interesting to me how all of us have defining moments in our life, moments that something occurred, some disaster touched our life, or some deeply profound event happened in our life that has an impact that changes everything from then on. All of us have those moments. It might be the moment that you, um, your spouse proposed to you or the moment that you learned of your, the pregnancy of your first child or there may be some unpleasant moment. But all of us have these moments that sort of define and alter everything from then, then on. And furthermore, what's really interesting to me is how not only do we have those individual moments, but we also can share collective moments like that. Every generation, it seems, has a moment that they will never forget. Two generations ago, it was December 7th, 1941, as Pearl Harbor was attacked. That generation would always point to that day, and they would say, I knew exactly where I was and what I was doing when that happened. The next generation could point to uh, the assassination of JFK and say, I knew exactly where I was when I heard about that. Our generation, or my generation anyway, points, of course, to September the 11th, 2001. I can tell you exactly where I was, exactly what I was doing, exactly what I was thinking, and exactly what I was feeling as I began to learn about that. And it, it wasn't instantaneous, but it took several hours for me to really comprehend what just happened. And I knew that some things were now different, that some, some things about life would never be the same after that. And I remember some of the things that I felt on that day and some of the things that I thought. Um, I remember feeling anxiety. I remember feeling some fear and concern. I remember feeling anger. One thing I don't remember feeling is personal repentance. I don't remember hearing about September 11th and thinking, I deserve to be in those towers. I need to repent. But of course, that's exactly what Jesus has just got done telling us should evo- that should evoke in us when we hear of suffering and tragedy in the lives of others. Our response should be, they're getting no more than I deserve, and so I need to repent. And last week, it was two more Islamic attacks, wasn't it, in uh, Egypt, on the Coptic church in Egypt, some 28 or something killed. In the same week, there was another terrorist attack in Manchester, England. Some 23, I think, were killed there. And then uh, this past week, I just heard this morning, there was another terrorist attack in London yesterday or last night. And we hear about these tragedies and the suffering and loss of life. And I wonder how many of us hear of those things and have the reaction that Jesus tells us from the passage in which we're, we're in that our one of our first reactions at least should be, you know, What's happened to those people is nothing worse than I deserve. And so I must reflect upon the grace that has shown me that I don't get what I do deserve, but instead I get far better than I deserve, and that should lead me into repentance. I would dare say that most of us probably don't have that initial reaction when we hear of tragedy and suffering in the lives of others. Likewise, Luke is telling us, that neither did the people of Jesus' day either have sort of that automatic first reaction either to think when they hear of suffering and tragedy in the lives of others to think they're getting no more than I deserve and so therefore I must be led to repentance. Instead, what we're going to look at this morning is a story of, once again, of suffering. It's a sad story, has a happy ending, but it is is a sad story and it tells a story of tremendous suffering But also in the story, I think what's truly sad is not the suffering of the person that we're going to read about, but instead the tragically hard-hearted responses of the hearts of those um, that are in the same location, that are witnessing this healing event. The callousness 
instead of being led to repentance, they are led to contemptuousness, to vindictiveness, to hatred, and to lash out at her. It's truly a sad story in that regard. Um, this is one of the most judgmental and one of the most calloused stories that we find in the New Testament. It's in Luke 13. We'll be looking at verses 10 down through verse 21. So here's your context, and then we'll read it. The context is Jesus has been teaching, and one of the things he's been teaching about is our need for repentance and God's long-suffering, his patience, as he calls us to repentance. He gives the story of the fig tree. Don't cut it down yet. Give it one more year. The patience of God as he's waiting for us to repent. And he's speaking of the fact that even though these people that are hearing him can discern some of the most subjective, ambiguous signs around them, and they can correctly understand these things, yet they can't understand some of the most obvious signs. In other words, Jesus says you can, you can see a certain kind of cloud, and you're, you can sense the barometric pressure drop, and you know that rain is coming, and you're right. That's not an easy thing to discern, but yet you discern it uh, correctly. And you can feel this certain kind of hot wind come from the south off of the desert, and you can discern that it's going to be a hot day, and you're right. You can discern those signs that are easy to mistake, yet you understand them correctly, yet here it is, the sign of God, the Son of Man is in your presence, and I have shown you multiplicity of signs, and yet you cannot discern these. Judgment is coming. You need to settle accounts with your Maker before Judgment Day comes. He's patient and He's long-suffering, but it is coming. And so you must repent. And then the implication is, Luke doesn't record this part, but the implication is that someone in the audience hears this and says, yeah, Jesus, I understand exactly what you're saying. I'm right on the same page as you because I can see the signs of judgment that are coming. And I can see how God is pouring out his judgment upon others. And by the way, there's this example of these uh, Galilean believers that, remember that? They were, they were sacrificing, and Pilate and his Roman army came in there and killed them while they were sacrificing. That's the judgment of God right there. Those were sinners that God poured his judgment out on, and I can see the signs for that. And then Jesus responds to basically say, you have utterly misunderstood. That is not the judgment of God. Do you think that those people are worse sinners than you? Do you think that they're getting what they deserve and you're getting what you deserve? You're not. So you should see the suffering and tragedy in the lives of others and that should remind you that you do not get what you deserve and that should lead you into repentance. And so hearing this word on repentance, just like we would hear the, uh, the teaching on repentance, our tendency as well as I think the people that are hearing Jesus, their first tendency is going to be yeah, you're right, Jesus. They do need to repent. And now, I think this is why Luke is going to insert this story right here as an illustration of what you need to repent of. This is an illustration, I believe, of the hard-heartedness that is the very thing that Jesus' hearers need to repent of. So as we read this story, we're going to read about some very calloused hearts and hard hearts, and I'm going to call you repeatedly to not think that this is something that's present in other people's hearts. But this is an illustration of what is present in all of our hearts in some way or in some form. So let's read together from verse 13 down through. Uh, your Bible is probably going to break this into three sections. This is really all one story that goes together down through verse 21. From verse 10, Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a man who had... There, I'm sorry, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? 
And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. And he said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So this is, again, I think one of the sadder episodes in the New Testament. This woman is debilitated by something that causes her to not be able to stand up straight. I would take it some sort of maybe osteoporosis. I think women are prone to that sort of thing. And you've seen people, older ladies, that are afflicted with such things as this. And it's a sad thing to see. I remember just a few weeks ago, I was uh, doing sermon prep in Starbucks, which is my favorite place to do sermon prep. And there was um, a lady there. Had, she had to be in her 80s, maybe upper 80s. And her bend was so sharp that if, if you measured it, I, I would not be surprised if it was not close to 90 degrees, the, the extent to which she was bent and could not stand up. And, and to watch her walk and, and just to think of what must it be like to try to walk or sit or stand or, or move or just go through life in such a painful way to live. Um, truly a sad thing to see, but again, the sadder thing is to see the hearts of those who are so unkind and so vindictive towards her. So, um, again, the story is going to have a happy ending, as we've just seen. So let's work our way towards that happier ending. Let's begin here from verse, from verse 10. Now, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, um, Luke is careful to point out to us one of the synagogues. And that's going to become, I think, a little bit more important later on. I'll point that out. But just to remind yourself of the synagogue and what the synagogue was and what it wasn't. The synagogues came into being in the generation that was exiled to Babylon. As the Jews were displaced from Israel, we know that there's one temple. There weren't many temples. There was one temple in Jerusalem. Well, now the Jews are exiled to Babylon and they can't go to Jerusalem. So they developed this idea of the synagogue. And the synagogue was not a place for sacrifices. There were no priests at the synagogue. Instead, it was a teaching place. It was a place that would have a board of elders. I think they would call it a board. They would, they, they would have elders, a collection of elders. And they would for, oversee the, the, the building, the facilities. They would arrange for different rabbis to come and teach. It was a place for God's people to gather and worship and learn and be taught, not sacrifice, but do all these other things. And the synagogue really became a central way of life for the Jewish people. By the time of Jesus' day, it was an integral part of life. And there were many, many, many synagogues. In fact, all over the land of, of Palestine, any place that there were any sort of population of Jewish people at all, there would be multiple synagogues there. We think of, of uh, places like Philippi, where Paul goes... And there's not enough Jewish men there to have a synagogue yet, so there's these women that are worshiping by the river. But outside of places like that, any sort of place that had any sort of Jewish population, there would be multiple synagogues. It's said that in Jesus' day, there were some 500 synagogues in Jerusalem. We assume here, it's not completely clear from the passage, but we assume that Jesus is in Jerusalem in this story. So there are many synagogues here. Jesus is at one of them teaching on the Sabbath, which was the perfect place for him to be teaching. Here are God's people gathered together to learn about God, to study his word. And here is the word teaching the word to those who are gathered here in the synagogue, the perfect place for Jesus to teach. And we think what an amazing thing it must have been to have been there to listen to the word of God teaching the word of God to the people of God. And, and it's easy to think, I, I think, you know, what, what an incredible thing to have been there to hear Jesus teach the word. But let's be careful to recognize that we are 
In no way are we at a disadvantage to those who sat at Jesus' feet and heard him teach the word of God. In fact, it's uh, easily arguable, I think, that we're at an advantage to them because we have not the physical embodiment of the word of God. We have the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the word in us that teaches us the word, that opens our hearts and discerns the word to us. So uh, as it's been said, you know, what's better to have Jesus at your side or in you? Um, and so these, this is what we have today. We have the Word of God in us, teaching us the Word of God. But no less so, it, was, it must have been an amazing thing to have been there to hear Jesus teaching the Word of God. But again, this is a reminder for us that um, you know, sometimes um, we can think if, if we could just have better preachers, if we could just preach the Word of God better than people would listen, here we have Jesus Christ teaching the Word of God, and as the story goes on to show us, even then, people don't get it, and people will not believe, and they will not understand. So here's Jesus teaching in the synagogue, on, the, on one of the synagogues in the Sabbath. And then verse 18, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So I want to say a couple things about that verse before we move on. And one of the things is obviously we have to notice that Luke says that it is a disabling spirit that has her physically disabled like this. Later on, Jesus, down towards the end of the passage, I think verse 18, Jesus is going to attribute it to Satan, that Satan has bound this woman for 18 years. So we don't know exactly what's going on, a disabling spirit. I think the old King James has it, uh, spirit of infirmity. Um, we don't know if this is the work of a demon or the work of Satan himself or there's this demon that's sort of doing Satan's work in this woman's body. We don't know exactly what's going on. Um, I think we have good reason to believe that this woman is a redeemed recipient of grace and forgiveness. I'm going to show that to us a little bit later in the passage and that will become important. But uh, just to kind of cut to the chase, Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham. And that's language that Jesus reserves for those who have received forgiveness and grace. He calls her a daughter of Abraham. So she is not a person that is possessed by demons. There's not a demon that's making her do things against her will. Like back in chapter 6, the man that was in the synagogue when Jesus started teaching there again and he couldn't help but to say things. Or um, the epileptic that uh, was seized by the demon and thrown into the fire or legion or whatever. They're not, this woman's not possessed by demons, making her do things against her will, but she is instead what I believe to be a follower of the Messiah who is oppressed by demon activity or harassed by demonic activity. In this sense, it's showing up in her life through this debilitating uh, condition, and we would assume in her back. So that gives us a reason to pause and think of, about our theology of sickness and our theology of demonic attack. Jesus, or Luke here, clearly attributes this to the work of demons. And we know, of course, from the story of Job that God at times does give the freedom to demonic activity in the life of his children. God uses it for his purposes. But we know that from time to time, God can do that. Um, and demo demonic activity in our life can perhaps result in some type of physical sickness or, or maybe even some type of emotional sickness or something of that nature. And from that, I have heard people develop sort of a theology of sickness and a theology of the demonic that takes that and takes it to another level. You may have heard the same sort of thing. And it basically looks like this. It, it turns into where everything is, you know, the, the spirit of anger or the spirit of migraine headaches or, uh, you know, I mean, we kind of chuckle at that. But it, it, for some believers, it becomes this whole theology of whatever's wrong and whatever's unpleasant is the work of demons in our life. Now, again, certainly... Luke shows us that that can be possible. However, um, I think that it's wise for believers in Jesus Christ to take the same emphasis that the New Testament takes. 
for all of Scripture for that matter, but particularly the New Testament. When we look in the New Testament and we see people that are afflicted in their bodies, then the vast majority of those are not attributed to the activity of demons. Sometimes they are. We think of Paul writing to the Corinthians. We think of this woman here, uh, perhaps the, the boy who had this sort of the epileptic seizures. We see occasions of that. But the majority of times when people are afflicted in their bodies in the New Testament, it's not attributed to demons, and it's not even attributed to sin. Remember the blind man in John 9. Instead, it's attributed to just the fact that we live in a broken, fallen world with broken, fallen bodies. And when we live in a world like this, with bodies like this, we should expect that to be the normal. We should expect, because our world is broken, and sin has touched everything in this world, we should expect that our bodies are going to fail and they're going to break. And that's kind of to be expected. So the New Testament does give a place for that, but it's a small place. And I think that the believer in Jesus Christ is wise to give it that same sort of accord in your life. Perhaps God may show you in his own way that some affliction in your life is the work of demons. But short of that, uh, we shouldn't attribute it to Jesus. Now, here's the unhelpful thing in doing that. When we attribute everything that's unpleasant in our life, physical suffering, or, um, again, I've, I've seen this taken into the spirit of anger, and people start rebuking the spirit of anger, or they start rebuking the spirit of greed, or whatever. When we attribute all the unpleasant, sinful things in our life to the activity of demons then we are not looking to where God would have us to look. He would have us to look to the deliverance from sin and the deliverance from a fallen world rather than the deliverance from demonic activity, which does exist and is a reality and is part of his ultimate salvation. But that's not the emphasis that God would have us to look to. It exonerates us of liability, exonerates us of responsibility when our anger is really the spirit of anger, instead of, that's just your sin. Okay, So that's the emphasis of the New Testament. Even though this woman has a disabling spirit, and that's not forefront in the passage. So she has this disabling spirit, and for 18 years she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself, but on the Sabbath she is with God's people. If anyone had reason to not be with God's people, on the Sabbath. It was this woman. I don't think she took a comfortable ride to get down to the Sabbath. I think she probably walked. And it was probably a long way. And I think that since she's been afflicted with this for 18 years, I think it's probably fully progressed. And if anyone had the excuse to not be with God's people on the Sabbath, would it not be this woman? And yet here she is, worshiping with God's people. Now I might say, well, she what if she just heard Jesus was in town and she wanted to be healed? And I don't think that's the case for several reasons. First of all, um, remember Luke said that Jesus is teaching at one of synagogues. So maybe she heard Jesus was in town. Maybe she thought he was going to be teaching at the synagogue, but which one? But more so than that, when Jesus heals her, what does he have to do? He calls her over. He sees her and calls her over. She's not there asking to be healed. Not that that was wrong. She's not there asking to be healed. Jesus notices her and says, come over here. And then furthermore, again, Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham. Language that is specifically reserved for followers of the Messiah. This woman was here because she loves Jesus and because she loves Jesus, she wants to be with God's people. And therefore, reasons to be away from God's people seem insignificant to her where reasons to be with God's people seem really significant. I don't want to overly labor the point. But all of us, on every given Sunday, have reasons to not be here. They're not hard to find, especially if you have little kids. They're not hard to find. We can all have reasons to not be 
with God's people. But if we are God's people, then we have a desire to be with God's people. And as a desire for Jesus grows in our hearts, the desire to be with his people likewise gets stronger and the reasons that keep us away shriek smaller and smaller and smaller. It's not to say that there's never legitimate reasons. It's not to say anything, anything legalistic like that. But it is to say, if we are God's people, our desire is to be with God's people. Um, I think I'll think I'll leave that and move on now. But our desire, her desire is to be with God's people. And here she is on the Sabbath, as God's people are together. Clearly. No, I'm not gonna I'm gonna say this. Um, one of the things one of the things that I regret about where the garden is right now, one of the things that I regret is that we don't have among us some elderly saints that have loved Jesus for decades and decades and decades and followed him and are now in the sunset of their life still loving him and still following him. Right? Um, the closest we come is Dean and Julie. Right? But that's, <laughs> you're still along. You're still I'm, a pretty I'm good still ways up away. on the horizon there. So. Yeah, you're still you're still a good ways away. But you all know um, you've been in, in group and you. There's these eighties, maybe into their nineties, and I know I've, I've been in many churches and where uh, you know there there are people that. Um, you know they're there for all kinds of other reasons, and that that it's not just for young people. That's there, there are elderly people that are at church every Sunday for the wrong reason. But there are some elderly saints that are there because they love Jesus, and I don't know if you've ever looked at some of them and thought, "What does it take for you to get here?" I don't. I can't even relate to what it takes for you to get here. And if you're getting here because you want everybody to see you and you want to see everybody else and you don't want to get left out on the gossip or whatever, whatever. But if you're here because you love Jesus, then wow. What an example to us whom, yeah, I mean, it's never easy to kind of get a family together and get everybody dressed and get, but we don't deal with anything physically compared to what some of the 85 and 90 year old saints deal with in their body to get to church because they love Jesus. We're lacking. We are worse off because we don't have some of that among us. So just just some thoughts there. But here's this lady. 18 years she's been disabled, bent over, could not straighten herself. Verse 12. When Jesus saw her. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus became aware of her presence. It means something else that we'll see in a minute. When Jesus saw her, he called her over. So she wasn't there at his feet. Again, it wouldn't have been wrong if she was. But that's not the reason she was there. He calls her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight. Jesus' healings are all immediate. There's no physical therapy that has to follow up. You know, she doesn't have to... Jesus didn't heal her and then she's got to strengthen her back muscles because she's been bent over all these years. He heals her and immediately she's straight. It's like uh, it's like the, the lame man, Peter and John, steps to the temple. He goes from lame, can't, can't walk, never has, has, hasn't walked for decades, to dancing and leaping. The healing is immediate. She was made straight and she glorified God. Now in those two verses, there are two things that happen that should bring deep, resonating joy to the leaders of God's people. One, someone is freed from their bondage to sin. Two, God is glorified. Those two things should bring deep happiness and joy to the leaders of God's people. That is what we should be doing this for. 
but we see that it's going to have the opposite result in the leaders of this particular synagogue. Instead of bringing happiness, it brings anger, it brings vindictiveness, and it brings hateful speech. So, she glorifies God. She's praising God. Verse 14, But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So, in other words, don't come to the gathering of God's people if you have anything wrong with you because you might get healed and that would be wrong. If you have some sort of sickness, stay away from God's people on the Sabbath. Because you might get healed and that might be... Because notice who he's rebuking here. He's not rebuking Jesus. He's rebuking the people. Ultimately, he's rebuking Jesus through the people, but he's speaking to the people. And he says to the people, you've got six days to get healed. Do it on those days. Don't do this on the Sabbath. So, if we were to sort of take that to its logical conclusion... If you have something wrong with you, if you have some sort of affliction, if you're afflicted by some sort of bondage to sin, if you have a demon attacking and harassing you, stay away from the synagogue on the Sabbath. Because if you were to happen to get healed, then you would have sinned. Crazy. Ludicrous, isn't it? So what's going on with this silly, crazy don't heal on the Sabbath command. Which, by the way, search the Old Testament all you like. And um, if you find it in the Old Testament, then you can preach next Sunday. Because it's not there. <laughs> the most stringent of rules, and nothing comes close to saying that. It, it is not in God's Word. It is not in the Mishnah or the rabbinic tradition. It's something completely fabricated. So what's going on with this silly, crazy, don't heal on the Sabbath thing? Because if you notice, that seems to be the thing that makes Pharisees and scribes and the leaders of the people, it seems to be the thing that really gets their goat. And that nothing seems to make them matter than when Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And granted, it does seem to be his favorite day to heal. I think uh, I counted them up one time. It's been a long time. But I think I went through and counted them, and, and I found that over half of Jesus' healings are specifically on a Sabbath day. So it seems to be his favorite day to do this. Yeah, but um, think back to the beginning of chapter 12 and how many people, were, thousands and thousands of people were flocking. It's not Jesus wasn't lacking an audience. So maybe at the very beginning, but at the beginning of his ministry, but Jesus is not lacking an audience to do miracles in front of. What makes them so mad when Jesus heals? Have you ever noticed that self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Have you ever noticed that they need a contrast? In other words, the self-righteous need to be surrounded by the sinful because that's what makes their self-righteousness noticeable. Because self-righteousness is a, a human righteousness that is a comparative righteousness. I'm going to put that in quotes. A comparative righteousness. The self-righteous are only self-righteous as they're compared to the sinners or the unrighteous. And so, in a strange, paradoxical sort of way, the self-righteous need sinners. Because without sinners, it's hard to tell who's self-righteous. or It's hard to tell who's righteous by in their estimation, right? Um, kind of like today. I mean, we look around at those who preach not a gospel of grace, but a gospel of, of works and a gospel of self-righteousness. And doesn't it seem like that 
the legalistic, self-righteous proclaimers of, of, of a legalistic gospel, they decry the immorality of the world, but they like doing it because they do it so much. It's because the self-righteous need to be contrasted against that which is not righteous, right? Otherwise, how do you tell who's self-righteous? Now, in Jesus' day, of course, um, it was the common understanding that afflictions of the body and these sorts of things were God's judgment on people. You were a sinner, and it was easy to tell that you're a sinner because you're blind, or because you're deaf, or because you're a leper. Right? That's the judgment of God on sinful people. And so here's a woman that literally, her very posture is a posture of humiliation. She's bent over. She can't even stand up. She just is this in this permanent position of humility. Clearly, she is a sinner. Clearly, she is under the wrath of God. And so here comes Jesus healing her. Making her stand up straight, you know. And there he is, healing a blind person and cleansing a leper and casting out a demon over here and restoring uh, uh, hearing to this person over here. Healing all these people. And the more people that Jesus heals, the madder they get. Because they, paradoxically, need those sinful objects of God's judgment in order for them to be seen as people who sort of got it together. And so the more Jesus heals and the more paralytics that he forgives and they stand up and take their bed home and the more blind people that are now seeing, the more their contrast is sort of not even eroded away, but reversed, right? Now, before we get too condemning in our thoughts of such people, Let's just recognize the fact that that same spirit of judgmentalism is in you and it is in me. Have you ever in your life noticed that there is a dichotomy when, when you think of those whom, uh, you know, lost friends or family or maybe not even lost, but just wayward, really wayward people in your life and um, there's this sort of split and there's a dichotomy in how you think about them. You want God to act in their life and to turn their life around and to, to make a real difference and make them a new person. But if you probe deep enough, you will find a darkness underneath that that kind of, you know, the fact that they spiritually can't get it together kind of makes you look good because you do spiritually have it together. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? Painfully, I've noticed that about me. That I can be burdened to pray for people and to want God to act in their life, but then they just can't ever seem to spiritually get it on the right track. But then somewhere deep down, it's like, and I do. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like so-and-so because I can hear your voice and I can respond and I can get it together. That same spirit is in us. How would we feel if God were to sweep across the globe with a, a revival of unprecedented proportions and people everywhere were to begin repenting and having changed lives? Would there be some small part of you that sort of, I miss the days when it was just us. I miss the days when we were different. Now everybody's like us, okay? I'm just sort of pointing out a darkness of judgmentalism that still exists within all of us. All of us like to think of ourselves as someone who has got it together when others don't. As someone who could discern the voice of God and obey it when others didn't, or someone who made some better choices than some others. And that's the same spirit of judgmentalism that this leader of the synagogue has. He's mad because the illustrations of his righteousness are being healed and taken away from him. And so he lashes out with this crazy sort of don't heal on the Sabbath, completely sort of made up thing. 
And so that's what's really going on. The more Jesus heals, the madder he gets. He's not joyful to see this woman set free from the bondage of sin. He's not joyful to see God glorified. Why? Because her bondage to sin accents his righteousness and her glorifying of God. Well, that's what he wants for himself. He wants people to glorify him. So he's not happy. Instead, he's really angry. Now, verse 15, then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? In other words, this has nothing to do with your love for God's law. Because you know what? God's law says you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. And God's law specifically addresses what you do with your animals on the Sabbath. And yet you find ways to get around that. Why? Because you're being merciful to animals like you should be. Yet, you find something that's not even in God's law, and you make it into a mountain to prevent you from being merciful to a human being. This has nothing to do with God's law. This has nothing to do with you being zealous for following the law. This has nothing to do with kindness. This has nothing to do with, with mercy. This has everything to do with your judgmentalism. You look at this woman and you see a sinner. You see someone beneath you. You see someone whom you are judging in your heart. And that creates a separation between you and her. And so... You look at your animals and you see animals that are thirsty and need to drink on the Sabbath and you find a way to be merciful to them. But yet you look upon this woman and you see nothing but a sinner in your eyes that makes you feel better in your own estimation and so you find ways to deny in your own heart to deny her mercy. This has nothing to do with God's law. It has everything to do with your judgmentalism. The better we see ourselves... The better we see ourselves, the less we see our need, and the more we see the needs of other people. The more that we see this distinction between us and others, and that creates a separation between us. I'm reading a book now uh, by uh, uh, Philip Morris. I think is his name. Um, the name of it is um, Love Walked Among Us. And what he does in this book is he just goes through the Gospels, and he just... His, his goal is to meticulously just look at how Jesus loved people and extrapolate from those some applications for our lives, which is how Jesus loved in these different circumstances. And one of the things that he says in there is really, I think, helpful for this story. He says, judgmentalism and compassion cannot coexist. Judgmentalism and compassion cannot coexist. Because judgmentalism creates separation, it creates a divide, it creates a distinction. Compassion must identify. Judgmentalism doesn't identify with others. Judgmentalism separates. Compassion identifies. And so compassion and judgmentalism can't exist in the same heart. One will push out the other. And so in order for us to be compassionate and loving like Jesus then we must die to ourselves, which means to stop measuring others by the yardstick of our life and to stop looking for all the reasons why other people are supposedly being judged by God and instead just see them as people in the image of God, just like us, sinners just like us, and identify with them, enter into their world, and that frees us up to act compassionately towards him. I think he's on to something. I think he's got a point. And I want to illustrate that point uh, with a story. And before I tell the story, let me just sort of preface this by saying the story's going to kind of sound like I'm bragging on my kids. and I'm not, okay? But in order to tell the story, it's got to sound that way, okay? All right, so there, you're forewarned. Um, <clears throat> Sam, uh, God has gifted Sam with some... Uh, de degree of natural athletic ability, uh, not like his dad, uh, but he's gifted Sam with some athletic ability, and Sam has a dad that since he was three has pushed baseball on him. He was catching and throwing when he was three years old. 
Um, and so what that means is that he plays baseball, and um, here's the part he's He is the most advanced player on his team. It's, that's just how it is. He's just, he, he catches, throws, hits, and runs better than any, anybody on his team just because uh, his dad makes him do all that all the time. So um, there's another kid on Sam's team, and uh, this other kid is more like I was when I was that age. He's not gifted athletically at all. Um, he can't run. He can't throw, he can't catch, and he can't hit. He can't do anything that the team does. He does nothing. Um, and this kid's really kind of struggling to find his place on the team. Well, anyway, a couple weeks ago, we're having baseball practice, and we're doing this drill, and the other kids are over here all together waiting for their turn. And later on, Sam come, comes and tells me, he says, uh, I won't use the kid's name, I'll make up a Travis. I'll call him Travis. Uh, so he comes over and he says, Travis was really mean to me. He's, he's hurt and he's angry and you see it in his face. He said he called me stupid and he wouldn't stop calling me. He called me all these other things. And uh, um, and so, you know, parents, they're, you know, now the bullying antenna go up. If, you, uh, if you've not yet had the pleasure of your children being bullied, then get ready. It's coming. And it will it will make you angry. So if you've not been there yet, it, it's coming, and it'll make you madder than fire. Um, but fortunately, this wasn't my first rodeo. Um, we've kind of been down the bullying trail a couple of times, so I wasn't thrown off guard by this. Uh, so Sam says, you know, this kid Travis, he, he, he was calling me stupid and calling me other these other mean things. And so I say, well, Sam, what did you do to him to make him do that? Nothing. I didn't say any. I didn't do anything. I said, well, well, what you should have done was just moved away from him. He said, I tried. I went here and he followed me and kept calling me these things. Anything. So um, at that point, okay, what I say to Sam is, um, here's what I think is going on. I said, you're the best player on the team. He's the worst. He can't do anything. He, he can't hit. He can't catch. He can't run. He can't throw. And he's sort of struggling to find a place. And one of the things that we've talked about a lot is our sinful tendency to, to think that we can pull ourselves up by pulling other people down. Right? We all think that way. We can pull ourselves up by pulling other people down. So I said, that's, I think that's what he's doing. He's trying to pull himself up, and he sees you as everything that he's not. And he's trying to pull you down, thinking that'll pull him up. And I said, you know, I, I really feel bad for Travis. And at this point, the lights go on. He's like, yeah. You know what? I feel bad for him, too. I feel really bad for him. Um, and so, I so then I say, well, what are we going to do? What, what are we going to do next time this happens? I said, if, you know, if, if he does that again and he won't stop and he's calling you, then, then get away. But other than that, I said, what can we do? Maybe we can just really try to be his friend. Really try to be... And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to really try to be his friend. And I tell that story to, to illustrate how everything turned when Sam saw him. When Sam entered into his world. And I think that's why it's so important that Luke says Jesus saw her. The synagogue leader looked at her and he saw a sinful woman. Jesus saw her and entered into her world. Just like Sam saw him and entered into his world and saw what it must be like to not be able to do the things that, that he can do and how it must feel to be on that side of the coin. And oh, that changed everything about, okay, now he's no longer angry, but now he wants to try to be his friend even more so than before. And everything changed when he saw him. It's like everything changed when Jesus saw her. And that's what Philip Morris is getting at. That judgmentalism separates, compassion identifies. 
And as we identify with others in the world, we stop evaluating why they can't spiritually get this together or why they can't do that or why they keep doing this sin. And we stop not ignoring sin, not pretending sin's not there, but stop evaluating everyone by our yardstick, but instead enter into their world and identify with where they must be. Then he says, we can be free to be compassionate, which is what Jesus is teaching. Now, as Jesus is teaching this, all right, the, the point is, Jesus is saying, repent. Judgment is coming. You need to repent. The response of their heart is, yeah, they need to repent. The story comes in to show, no, this is what's in your heart. This is what you need to repent of. Now look at verse 17. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So here we have sort of a microcosm, a snapshot of the coming kingdom of God. All his adversaries were put to shame. All the people glorified God in what Jesus did and said. And those who are oppressed by the bondage to sin are released. That's, that's, a, that's the kingdom of God. That's a picture of the coming kingdom of God. And so that's what then triggers Jesus to say what he says next. Because look, the connection is so close. Verse 18, he said, therefore. So you can't separate verse 18 from verse 17. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it is all leavened. So what's the connection? Um, here's this picture, this microcosm of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus goes on to say, and here's what the kingdom of God is like. And he tells these two stories. So the two stories have two commonalities between them. The first is that there is this extraordinary growth, unnatural, phenomenal type of growth. The second is that that growth really did not come about by the work of human hands. So let's take the second story first, the leaven. Okay? The woman puts leaven in the flour. Okay? So that's the human hands there. But what happens then is sort of a mystery. I mean, it's still a mystery to me is how leaven leavens. It just happens. Right? Scientifically, I think we have a better understanding of that today, but Jesus' day, people would look at the work of leaven. It was like magic. Like, we don't know what happens, but we know what happens. So we put the leaven in there. The second thing we see in the story is that there is an extraordinary amount of flour. Three measures. Um, in Old Testament language, that was three seides. And I forget, I think five seides make an ephah or something. We're, none of us are probably up on our Hebrew measurements, so I worked it out. It's about 40 pounds of flour. I'm the only one in the room that deals with 40 pounds of flour on a regular basis. Okay, That's a lot of flour. So the idea here is that that's an enormous amount of flour that through no work of my own is now changed. Now let's go to the first story, the story of the mustard seed. Um, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that's planted and grows into a tree, and then the tree grows and birds build nests in its branches. Um, you probably don't have, you probably don't grow your own mustard, I'm guessing. But just to help us all out uh, in our collective horticultural weakness, mustard doesn't grow on trees. Mustard grows on bushes. So here's another instance in which the Bible has made an error. And the biblical writers didn't even understand basic horticulture. And they, this shows us clearly that the Bible is fallible. Or does Jesus mean something else? Does Jesus mean that this type of growth isn't even natural? Isn't even normal? The mustard doesn't turn into trees. Most especially trees big enough 
for birds to build nests that are out of the reach of people. This is an unnatural kind of growth that once again, what did the humans do? Well, they put a seed in the ground. So both of those stories have this commonality. There's something insignificant, something insignificant that happens that brings about an extraordinary growth. What's the insignificant thing that happens? Or, let me put it a different way. What's the seemingly insignificant thing that happens? What's Jesus teaching about? Repentance. Repentance is the seemingly insignificant thing that happens. That when it happens, there's no limits to the kingdom of God. You see? Who would think that a gospel that preaches repentance would result in a church that, you know, understandably, the majority of people that claim Christ don't really know him, but even so, millions and millions and millions of people have had their lives changed. We could go through the list of all the effects that the kingdom of God has had on society. And all of this has come about through a gospel of repentance. The kingdom of God knows no limits outside of people's resistance to repent. That is the only limit to the growth of the kingdom of God is our unwillingness to repent. Our unwillingness to release our judgmentalism and embrace a lifestyle of repentance that then frees us to be compassionate and to love like Jesus loved. That's the only limit to the kingdom of God here on earth. What does God say in 2 Chronicles 7, 14? If my people will do this one thing, if my people will do this one thing, if they will humble themselves and repent, there would be no limit to what they would see in the growth of the kingdom of God. They would see mustard seeds turn into trees. They would see the magic of leaven change three measures of flour. They would see things that they would be shocked to see if my people would just repent. If they would cease holding on to this self-righteousness that yes, they believe in the gospel of grace and they received it, yes, but there's still part of them that clings to a human righteousness that's theirs, that they think is theirs, that they won't let go of. If my people would let go of that and embrace their repentance to such a degree that when you hear about the suffering of anyone, your reaction is to say, that's just what I deserve. That's it. That's, I deserve that, not them. I deserve that. You know, um, Brother Richard is uh, the one person I think that most exemplifies sort of a spirit of repentance because every time, you know, you ask Brother Richard, how are you? I'm better than I deserve. That, to me, it, it embodies this this mentality, this attitude that says whatever I receive from God is more than I deserve to receive from Him. And that only springs from, from a heart that, that sees that whatever sin you or you or you or you or any of us are entangled in, it's no worse than what I'm entangled in. It's no worse than the pit that God found me in. So that's Jesus' point here. The kingdom of God would know no limits if the people of God would embrace this attitude of repentance. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. 
The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.